The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, or good evening, or good morning, depending on where you are in the world or when you're listening to this. Um, But welcome, regardless, to getting in a College Coach Conversation uh, winter has finally come to New England, although unlike last year when I was staring out this window looking at feet of snow, I am looking at a dusting of snow, uh, and it's a little chilly. But for some of you, the admissions and financial aid process is either starting to shift into high gear, uh, or you're still just kind of thinking about it, really getting started, and if so, well, enjoy that part of it. Um, before I forget, many of our regular listeners know this, but I did want to always... Um, highlight it. I often send you guys to our archives on the Voice America site or on iTunes because you can download every one of these um, radio shows for free on iTunes. And I'm not sure if you knew this, but you can actually sign up to get these. So every week we do a new show and then it's automatically downloaded onto iTunes. And if you sign up for the downloads, it will automatically be downloaded to your device, whatever that is. So if you're interested and you want to make sure you don't miss any shows or you want to go back and listen to some of our earlier shows, um, check out iTunes. And if you do go over there and you want to give us a review, that would be really helpful. Um, We want to capture more people's attention and let them know what we're doing here. Um, Anyway, back to the show. Last week, we talked about what you need to do to prepare to complete the FAFSA. And if you're interested in that, check those archives I was just talking about. Um, But this week, we're going to be answering all of the frequently asked questions that come up about the FAFSA. So we get them a lot. And I think these are probably questions that come up every single year and that financial aid officers might recognize or anybody else who's dealing with the FAFSA. We're also going to be doing another segment in our extracurricular activity series. And this week, it's all about ideas for students interested in writing in English. But first, um, in the fall of 2015, so this past fall, a coalition of U.S. colleges and universities announced the creation of a brand new application, the Coalition app. And their stated goals for the new form are that they want to offer an alternative to the common and universal applications, and also they want to increase access to underserved populations. Um, You may have read about this. You may not have read about this. You may now be saying, whoa, I haven't heard about this. What do I need to know? Uh, And so we're here for that. I am excited to welcome my colleague, who's a former Reed admissions officer, uh, Abigail Anderson. She's done a lot of research on this, read all the articles, done the follow-up, and she's going to help us understand um, as much as possible about the coalition, coalition application. Welcome, Abigail. Thank you for having me, Beth. 
Absolutely. And thanks for kind of doing all this research. For for those of you who are listening, the the announcement of the coalition app was sort of either a little bit of a neutron bomb in the admissions world <laughs> or kind of for others a little bit for those of you who aren't in the admissions world, a bit of a so what moment. Um, but if you're going to be gearing up to do to go through the application process, it's important for you to know about this new development. And so why don't we start at the very beginning and that is tell our readers what is the coalition app, you know, who's involved and, and from your perspective, why was it created? So the Coalition app is, as you mentioned in the intro, it's a new platform launching this spring and or summer. Some of this remains up in the air, and we'll definitely be talking about that a bit later. Um, The Coalition is an actual group of colleges and universities, and according to their website, they say that they represent more than 80 American higher ed institutions with a commitment to providing students the best possible college experience beginning with the college application process. So they're saying that that process of being a college student begins well before you show up on campus with your bags and, um, you know, for orientation, and that they wanted to start with the college application process. Um, What's interesting about the coalition uh, is they actually have criteria for membership. Um, And so these 80 schools are not just the 80 schools that wanted to join the coalition, they actually all meet two major points of criteria. So they all have a six-year graduation rate of at least 70%, and they all have a commitment to financial affordability. So for public universities in the coalition, they have to have affordable in-state tuition. Uh, No definition for what affordable means, but it has to be affordable. Got it. Um, And... And, and private schools have to meet full demonstrated need of their admitted domestic students. So the, the answer to who is involved is, well, it's about 80 schools. They represent a really wide variety of schools, everything from small liberal arts schools like Colby and St. Olaf and Reed, where I used to work, to the Ivies, um, like Brown and Dartmouth, uh, Princeton, to some really large flagship universities, schools like Michigan State, Penn State, Texas A&M, Ohio State, they too have joined the coalition application. Um, And the answer for why it was created is a little bit more complicated. And I know, Beth, you have some answers to that question too. And um, it just goes to prove that there are various different reasons for, for why this application was created. The coalition itself says that this group of schools is coming together to find a way to combat uh, the fact that students from disadvantaged backgrounds often don't get to participate effectively in the college application and financial aid process. Um, So they're saying they want to create a platform that helps students gain access to college and financial aid in the U.S. Um, But we also know that there were significant issues with a common application. So a little confusing. We have two acronyms that are exactly the same, the coalition application and the common application. But um, the coalition application group, the new group, we know many of them perceived um, issues with a common application two years ago, so uh, fall of 2014. And there is definitely some 
implicit understanding that that's part of why this group was created. Yeah, and I mean, that's really kind of my... So, um, again, for those of you who are listening who are probably not in the admissions world beyond just you're going to be part of the admissions world by applying to colleges or your child's going to be applying to colleges. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff going on behind the scenes about this. In fact, there's even a Facebook group that's sort of dedicated to, I wouldn't say dedicated to hating on the coalition app, but it's dedicated to really sharing its displeasure with this. Um, vigorous and the, discussion for sure. Yes. Vigorous <laughs> discussion. And, I think that it's true while the coalition is saying that this is about access, and I think that's a really um, wonderful idea. I think there are a lot of people out there, and I wouldn't necessarily say that I am one of them, but I think I have a, a, a bit of skepticism about the claim that that's really the primary goal is to increase access. Um, because what a lot of people think is that the primary goal was they were mad because the Common App was having so many problems and they just decided that maybe they could do it better themselves. And then when kind of, well, gee, why are we going to tell people that we're doing this? The whole access thing came came to the forefront. And my guess is it probably wasn't quite that um, like that. I think probably a big group of people came together and one of a big conversation piece for all of these highly selective institutions, which many of the coalition app, uh, um, participants are of the highly selective variety, although not all, um, is really about how do we increase access? How do we get more students here who, you know, maybe don't have as much access to higher education or who are coming from very disadvantaged backgrounds, whether they're attending schools with little funding or they don't have a great counseling? You know, how can we help those kids because I don't know about you, but I used to see applications at Penn where this would could have been a great student, and and the the overwhelming theme was, wouldn't it be great to admit this kid coming here would change his or her life? Unfortunately, they didn't great get great counseling, or they just didn't know that they needed to take these classes, or maybe be more of an active participant in their community. And if they had done that. They would have. We would have been able to take them, but right now we're worried about their preparation. And I so there's that good aim there. And I'm getting a little bit off topic, but I I, I think that that probably was part of the conversation as the coalition got started, and then it, it sort of was like, wouldn't it be cool if we could do that with this application as well? That's where uh, that's uh, kind of where I've netted out on that piece of it. And I, absolutely, and and I think. Hearing that other opinion and all these different voices just shows how much nuance there is to this conversation about the coalition application and how passionate we are about what we do as people who work in the field of admissions. Um, I, I think that there are definitely legitimate constraints to the common application. I saw this last year as Reed when we wanted to make an adjustment to our supplement um, a little bit later in the year, not before any applications had come due, but and not before we had even received a single application, but we weren't allowed to make those changes after a certain date. And so there are constraints to using the common application that schools do um, budge up against. They do, you know, there they can it can be stifling, but I think it's also important to realize that if you look at that group of 80 schools, you might imagine that there are some schools in the group who looked at the, the initial 
founding schools and said, oh, gosh, we want to be aligned with those schools. We want to yep. be aligned with those name brand schools. We want to be seen on that coalition website when students click through and figure out what are the 80 schools and maybe we'll get a couple more applicants out of it or maybe we'll find a few more students who are interested in those, you know, uber highly selective schools. So it's definitely, as you said, Beth, a combination of probably some really genuine desire to improve the college admission process for students and also some more kind of traditional college admission um, uh, uh, game playing. Yeah, exactly. And so let's actually, let's share with our, our listeners what the big kind of hot button issue is, and that is what was formerly, when it was originally introduced, called the portfolio and now has been changed to the virtual locker. So tell us about the virtual locker. Yes, so the infamous virtual locker. So um, the way the coalition application is actually going to work is that students will be able to sign up and create an account at the website, the coalition website, at any point in time. Um, a colleague, a former colleague of mine, likened this account creation to being like any other social media site. So if you signed up for Facebook or Flickr or Twitter, Instagram, it's going to feel a lot like signing up for another social media site. Students, once they've created an account, and this is an account for a locker, and mm-hmm. that's the key word, um, they can upload whatever they want. They could upload photos, essays, videos, um, tweets, anything they're interested in. Um, the material that they uploaded, and I think this is the most important piece to keep in mind, can be accessed only by people that that student specifically chooses to have access. So... Um, if, if I signed up and I said, well, Beth is my college counselor, so I want her to be able to see everything I upload, but I'm applying, I think, to Colby College. I don't want them to see it. I can have that level of um, oversight or control over who gets to see what I upload and who doesn't. Right. Um, so just to, just to reiterate, reiterate this point, the colleges do not have access to the locker. They only have access to the contact information that a student releases about themselves. So you could liken this to filling out a contact card at a college fair or signing up for a mailing list online. You are choosing to give away that information when you sign up for that mailing list and just the same, you are choosing to give access to your locker, to whom you decide. Got it. Um, eventually, students can build a list of colleges, um, including, I believe at this point in time, that's going to include colleges outside of the coalition. My understanding from colleagues who are working on this um, is that that part of the site uh, is not built out yet. Um it sounds like they're not really sure how this is going to function yet, um, but it's probably going to be similar to some sort of college guide. Um, unclear whether it will be more than just links to a college's website um, and what type of information it would include, but there will be some sort of list-building tool. And okay. then the third part of the coalition 
application or website that we're expecting is, of course, the application itself. Um, there will be some sort of standard common appy kind of type of form, um, but then all colleges will have the ability to request different things from students. So, um, you know, it could be a traditional supplemental essay or a personal statement. And then what I think people have been hearing a lot about it and, and extrapolating maybe incorrectly, maybe correctly, hard to know at this point, but there, this is the point in time where students may be asked to share things from their locker that best represent them. So technically, yes, if a student signed up for their locker in ninth grade, they could be sharing something from ninth grade, but it doesn't have to be unless that's something the college itself has requested. And we don't really know yet if you're going to be able to remove things from the locker after you add them, but I would guess that you probably can, but we don't know for sure. Right. And I think what's really important, I kind of alluded to this previously, but I have this sense that most admission offices in the coalition don't know what this is going to look like. I think it's really being built out right now and that a lot of the questions that we have don't have answers because this hasn't been created yet. Um, They haven't gone through a beta testing process. It hasn't gone through. I I just don't think it exists yet. (laughs) Got it. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. So we are um, we're running up against time limit, and yeah. I have two more important things that I want to cover. The first and probably um, most important is, do we know yet when it's going to launch? Yes and no. The locker portion is definitely going to launch in April of 2016. So the part um, that they the don't launch- know what it is yet is going to launch right. in April. <laughs> awesome. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, the launch date of the application hasn't been announced, but according to the coalition website, they say, quote, many schools will start accepting the coalition application through the coalition portal in the summer of 2016. So I think we can assume the application itself is going to launch sometime between April and August. Okay. And, you know, for those of you who are maybe never gone through this before, um, the Common App t- typically uh, launches on August 1st. So I would guess if the coalition really wants to be a um, competitor to the Common App, they probably need to get up there right around that same time, if not a little bit earlier. Um, right. But we don't know yet, and that's the key. And then I guess the last question, and I'm guessing we don't know this yet either, one of the hallmarks of the Common Application, which, by the way, Virtually all 80 of these schools doing the coalition application, I believe, currently accept the Common App. Mm -hmm. Do we know yet if they're going to jettison the Common App, if they're going to have a preference for the coalition app over the Common App, or what do we know about that at this point? So really hard to say. Um, I have been able to speak to some former colleagues and friends who work in admissions. The general consensus is at this point in time, these Schools in the coalition don't feel that they will ever place more value on the coalition app than the common app or even the universal application or their personal application. Um, But again, this is so new and and in essence undeveloped. I -hmm. think it's really hard for any school to give a concrete answer because they don't know what they don't know about the coalition application. Right. So long story short for everyone listening today, 
There's a lot we don't know. We shared what mm-hmm. we did know, and we're going to come back uh, to this as we learn more. So this will be something that develops over the course of the next few months. I know that for me today, if you asked me, I would say I'll be pushing my kids to use the Common App this year because it's a known entity. And when, you know, usually there are less issues with a known entity, at least for the first few years of something that's brand new. Of course, I say that tongue in cheek because we've had plenty of issues with the Common App. Nothing is infallible. Um, Abigail, thank you so much for being here today. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to sharing more as we learn more about the Coalition app. All right. Well, I I will welcome you back with open arms and we'll put a few more of these on the calendar so that we can keep people up to date. All right, everybody. Next up, FAFSA frequently asked questions. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Uh, As I mentioned in my intro, last week we talked about what you need to know before sitting down to complete the FAFSA. And this week, we're going to keep talking about the FAFSA. uh, And I'm excited to welcome college coach, educator, and former Babson um, financial aid officer, Michelle Clifton here. She's going to give us some answers to the questions most people have about the FAFSA. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Beth. How are you? Great. Good. Well, I know in your many years of doing this work, um, I am guessing you have answered 
the questions we're going to go through here today many, many, many times. Um, yes, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's probably similar to the questions that I get all the time. Like, would it be better to get an A in regular level or a B in the honors? <laughs> Uh, you know, or how, you know, we don't yet have the community service. We need to take care of that. That's very important, right? Like we get all those kinds of questions. I'm, that was a bad example, but there are some that I get over and over and over again. So let's start with that. So last week we talked about how, um, the student and one parent need to create an FSA ID to log into the FAFSA and to sign it. Uh, so whose FSA ID is used to log into the FAFSA? Is it the parent or is it the student? Yeah, we get this question all the time. So you have to remember that it's the student that's enrolling in college, and they're the ones that are actually applying for financial aid. So it's the student FSA ID that's used to log in. The parent FSA ID is used to then sign the FAFSA on the sign and submit page, which is the last step before actually submitting the FAFSA. All right, so student is applying, use the student FSA to log in. But parent is helping to pay, so they're the ones who have to, they have to use their ID to sign it and submit it, basically. Yeah, it's confusing because a lot of times it's the parent that's actually completing the whole thing, so they think that they need to log in, which I totally understand. Yeah, I mean, it does make sense. All right, Mm -hmm. so the FAFSA only allows a student to add up to 10 colleges. Gosh, I wish it would be if you, once you use up your 10, that's all you can apply to. That would be helpful (laughs) for some of my students. Um, But what do you do if you want to apply to more? So what if you do if you're going to apply to 12 colleges, for example? Yeah, so we definitely know that, you know, students are applying to more than 10 colleges in a lot of cases. So, but the FAFSA has not changed. It still only allows up to 10. So there's a couple ways to tackle this. And they're explained under the school selection page, which is the second section of the FAFSA. But I'll go over the most common way to to do this. So basically, the family will complete all sections of the FAFSA and list 10 schools. Then they go ahead, sign, and submit the FAFSA. Within about three days, it'll be processed. And when it's processed, the student receives an email with the student aid report. So at that time, they know they can actually go back to FAFSA.gov and choose Make FAFSA Corrections. So by doing this, they'll log back in. It's not like they have to recomplete the FAFSA. All the data is still going to be there. Mm -hmm. And they can actually, this time, they can skip ahead to different sections because they're all complete. So they can go right to the school selection page by clicking the second tab at the top. And then if they're applying to 12 schools, they can take out two and then add the two that were missing. And they got to make sure that they save it. And then they can actually skip ahead to the sign and submit page, which is the sixth tab at the top, and go ahead and submit the FAFSA. So at that point, it will be sent to those other schools, so they'll all get it. So it's, you know, you definitely want to make sure that the FAFSA is going to every school because any school that doesn't receive it, they're not going to process financial aid for the student. Right. So the key there is you have to wait a few days until you know that that other school has received it, and then you can go in and remove those schools, and it won't affect yeah, what you've already yeah. sent. Yeah, it won't. While it's processing, it won't even let you log in. So got it. Um, so there's no chance you could do it by accident. Exactly. Okay. Good to know. All right. So the FAFSA asks about you know who's in the household. Who do you include there? How do you know who to put down there? Yeah, so a lot of times people think they're just asking for the siblings or just the parents, um, but they're really looking at the whole household. 
So the student definitely needs to be included. Um, and then if the parents are married or not married and living together, then both parents are included in the household. If the parents are separated, divorced, never married, or not, uh, never married and not living together, then one parent is included. So that one parent is called the custodial parent. And the custodial parent is the one that the student lived with more in the past 12 months. So that parent's included. If, they're, if that parent's married, then their spouse is also included in the household. Got it. And then this is- if there are siblings who the parent will provide more than half of their support in the upcoming year, even if they don't live at home, they can also be included. And then finally, if there are other household members, like a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, um, if the parent, if they live with the parent and the parent provides more than half their support and will continue to do so in the upcoming year, then it's okay to include them as well. So the key things are living in the same place unless it's a kid um, who you are supporting, right? And if they live there, you have to be supporting them. Exactly. And it's all uh, spelled out in the help section of FAFSA too. So if you forget, you know, there's, there's resources there. Right. I think you know, for me, the big takeaway is someone who is, you know, I have a blended family. I'm divorced. Mm-hmm. My husband is divorced. We have kids. It's tricky. And so I think the key there is it's not, it's good to know that it's not always just one way, that there are multiple ways to think about the in the household and to go to the help section and make sure you're doing it correctly. Exactly. Exactly. All right. What are some common mistakes that people make? They may not ask the question, but you used to see frequently people forgetting to do things or filling things out incorrectly. You know, tell us about some of those. Sure. So the first one that comes to mind is actually completing the wrong FAFSA. So many months of the year, there's actually two different versions available. So like right now, there's the 1516 version as well as the 1617, which is the one that just became available on January 1st. So it's based on the academic year that the student's going to be enrolled. So someone who's a senior in high school now is not going to want to do the 1516 version because they're not in college now. So if you're enrolling in fall 2016 or spring 2017, they're going to want to do the sixteen seventeen FAFSA. So okay, makes when they, sense. When they get could, to the first, sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say it makes sense, but I could see how it would be very confusing when you were sitting down to actually do it. So, sorry, yeah, I interrupted and, you. And honestly, I was just can't. Yeah, so, um, when you get to the page that says, you know, start sixteen seventeen FAFSA, start fifteen sixteen FAFSA. The 1516 is a white box, and the 1617 ha- happens to be a dark blue box. For some reason, my eyes just totally ignore the 1617, so I can totally see why someone would right. pick the wrong one. Absolutely. And we definitely saw that. You know, when I was at Babson, students would call and say, did you get my FAFSA? And we'd look and say no. And then if we went to the prior year, we'd see it there. So, you know, Got no it. one wants to complete this twice, so definitely make sure you're doing the right year. Okay. So you were going to give them a couple more tips tips about that, and I interrupted you very rudely. So, oh no worries. Any, <laughs> anything else you wanted to that, mention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have a couple of these um, common, um, just tricky things. So another one is not including siblings in college. So it the fact to ask for um, the household information or the household number, but it also asks for the number of students in college. So if you have a sibling who's going to be enrolled at least half time in the same academic year, make sure that you're including them because that has a large impact on financial aid. So you definitely want to 
make sure you're reporting that right. That makes sense. And then, the, yeah, and this one may sound really silly, but I promise you it happens. But mm-hmm. entering the wrong name for the student. So no nicknames, full legal name only. Um, otherwise, you have to provide documentation. It's a pain for everyone involved. Yeah, you know, actually, interestingly enough, it doesn't surprise me. One of the things that I see is that I have students who have maybe two different names. Um, I had a student this year, she's Chinese, and she has an American name that she uses. It's what all her friends call her. It's what I called her. But she has a Chinese name, and there ended up being quite a bit of confusion over which is her official name. And um, and I, she's not the first student I've ever worked with who's had that issue. So that doesn't surprise me. No, that's that's very common. Absolutely. Um, so and then it- something else is mm-hmm. um, entering parent income and asset information in the student section. So I would see that happen every once in a while, and and I can kind of see why because there's one financial information section on the FAFSA, and it kind of so it starts out with the parent income goes into um, asset questions, but then it kind of rolls right into the student information. So someone that's not paying attention may end up double counting, you know, parent information. Mm-hmm. So you just have to remember, you know, anytime the FAFSA is asking for your whatever it is, you know, your adjusted gross income, that's actually referring to the student. If they're asking for parent-related information, they will specifically say parent, mother, or father. Got it. Okay, so that's good. Uh, all right, so those are some common mistakes. What about um, for parents who have the, I don't know, I guess you could call it misfortune, but not necessarily, but you have two kids, they're both in college during 2016-2017 academic year. Can you do the FAFSA once to cover both, or do you need to fill it out for each kid? Right. That actually reminds me, I was talking to someone the other day who was actually going to have four in college and what, at oh one my time, God. and I was like... I wish you could do one FAFSA. That's not fair. But, yeah, you do have to do a separate FAFSA for each student. Um, but there is a way to make it a little bit easier um, if you're doing it in one sitting. So if you go ahead and complete the FAFSA for one child, if you submit it and get to the confirmation page and stay there without closing out your browser, there's actually a link there, and it will allow you to transfer the parent data into another FAFSA. So if you click that link and start the second child's FAFSA, all the parent data will be automatically populated, which is really the toughest part. So um, that'll make the process a lot easier. You just have to remember not to close out the browser because you get a confirmation email as well, but that link isn't on there. Got it. So if you do it, you have to do it before you close out because otherwise you're going to have to start all over again, sounds like. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, well, that's a great tip then. the second time, it's always easier. (laughs) Of course. Well, because you just did it, so now you know. But still, who wants to? I mean, nothing makes me happier than when I'm buying something online and I've filled out all of my ship-to information. Then I get to the billing and I can just check. You know, you check the box and boom, it's all there. I don't have to fill it out again, even though it took me 30 seconds to fill out the other stuff. I know. I don't know what it is, but whenever you go somewhere new, it's such a pain. It is. It really, it's true. So you've given them a great tip so they don't have to do that. What about, um, I think I know the answer to this one, and I'm guessing that a lot of people do, but I also bet that a lot of people don't, and that is, could, do you get to do the FAFSA once and it's good for all four years, or is it a yearly kind of thing? Yeah, so, you know, most people know this, but not always. You do have to reapply for financial aid every year. 
um, that the students enrolling, uh, because pro- financially it's only processed for one academic year at a time, so you do have to renew it. Um, but the good news is the doing a FAFSA renewal is a lot easier than the first time around because um, a lot of the demographic information is saved, so you're not completely starting from scratch. Right, and I mean, so it, it does... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, just updating the um, income information and asset information. Right, and that's the information that can change from year to year, and so it does mm-hmm. make sense because certainly what could happen is that you have a banner year and... Therefore, you qualify for a whole lot less financial aid, but it could also happen that you have a really bad year and then you could qualify for more financial aid. So, exactly. um, very true. Right. It does make sense. You'd have to fill it out every year. What if you won the lottery after you got financial aid? You would want to pay. You had all that money from right. playing Powerball. <laughs> I would want to pay anyway. Uh, all right. So, really, last question I have um, for you is... Uh, should families ever pay? I mean, we're, we are in the business of working with families and helping families um, going through the college application process from a both an admissions and a financial aid um, perspective. But should people ever pay for someone to complete the actual document for them, to complete the FAFSA for them? I really feel like no. You know, it's called the free application for a reason. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that it, it's fun to complete. It's definitely not. Um, but there are lots of resources to help, and it's it's really not that tricky to do. There's a, Every single question has help and hints on the right side of the page. Um, and if those aren't clear enough, you could always call the student, uh, the Federal Student Aid Information Center. Um, they even have a live web chat that, that families can use seven days a week it has pretty minimal wait time, and you can just type in your questions. They'll get back to you right away, and, and they even email you a copy of the conversation, so you can have that for your records, which I think is pretty cool. That's very cool. And then, and, uh, yeah. yeah, if you have more questions or you just want to talk to someone else, you could always call the financial aid office of any of the, any school that students applying to. You know, they could always help, and, and they clear up any confusion. I think, yeah, you I know, did. save that money. Save it? Sorry? I'd save the money and use it towards some books for the fall semester. I just don't yeah. think it's it's worth the money. Absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, we, we do help families who are thinking about um, paying for college and help them figure out maybe how to use what they have to pay for college or mm-hmm. what considerations maybe when they're putting together a list of schools they want to be thinking about from the financial perspective. But we don't fill out FAFSAs for people and we don't, you know, we can offer our advice on that. But um to your point, there are so many free resources that people can access just to fill out the FAFSA. And and um, and I really like the last one that you said, which is to call the financial aid office. I think a lot of times people are afraid to talk to anyone on the college side because they fear that whatever question they ask is somehow going to harm their students' chances of getting either getting in or getting any aid. And unless you call up and are like a complete raving lunatic and are terrible to the person on the other end of the line, uh, and they have your name, your full name, and therefore they know who your child is, I mean, you'd really have to be crazy in order to catch anyone's attention or say something that would somehow impact your child. So, um, you know, they can be a really good resource, and I'm sure that financial aid officers are cursing us right now, and their phones start ringing tomorrow. But I know. These these are certainly calls you shouldn't be afraid to make. Right. Um, and I always Michelle, say it's a good 
it's always good to, to have a good rapport with your financial aid counselor anyway because, you know, then you can go to them later and ask for more funding. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. So there's never it's never a bad time to make a good relationship and a phone right. call asking some legitimate respectful questions is um, never going to hurt anybody. And um, certainly all the financial aid people that I know have been truly wonderful people. And of course, a big chunk of them currently work for College Coach. So I might be a little <laughs> biased. Um, Michelle, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, So after the break, we're going to be doing another in our series on extracurricular activities. So we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. I was listening to the intro and I was thinking one of these days people, someone is going to call in. We've done a couple of call-in shows specifically, but I really do welcome the time when someone says, you know, I've got a question. I'm going to call. Um, Maybe the phone will ring right now. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, Before the break, I mentioned that we're going to be talking about extracurricular activities. For those of you who aren't aware, we've been doing a series on this and really just ideas for students with specific areas of interest. Uh, And the latest we're doing today is about writing in English. And as a former English major with a concentration on creative writing, 
This topic is a particular interest to me, um, but I'm also excited to welcome my colleague, who's former Goucher admissions officer and high school counselor, Lisa Albro, to the show and to talk about it with me. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Beth. No, wait, were you an English major too? I sure was, with a writing yeah. emphasis. So. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, uh, I would go. say that <laughs> describes actually a few people on our team. A lot of what we do is helping students think about what to write their essays about and then helping them to edit them. And I think that skill set comes in, comes in handy and perhaps is something that draws us to this job. I'm not really sure. but um, So let's say you are a student like me or like you who enjoys English or writing um, and you're thinking, you know, I really like these areas and maybe you want to major in that. Maybe you don't, but it's certainly something that you enjoy and that you maybe are good at or you'd like to get a little better at. What are, where are the places you suggest students start when they start thinking of extracurricular activities, let's say, at school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I always think of the writing aspect first because those, are, those seem to be the most natural um, outlets that schools Mm -hmm. offer, for example, the newspaper, the yearbook, even though the yearbook tends to be a lot of pictures, there's also copy that gets written for the yearbook and, and, you know, themes and things have to be thought up and there, that's creativity. So yearbook, newspaper, literary magazine, those are three outlets that many high schools, I would say probably most high schools have at least one or two of them, if not all three. Uh, So that, that makes a lot of sense for kids. Uh, Sometimes there are clubs or groups or organizations through high schools that uh, offer uh, poetry, uh, you know, poetry rounds or playwriting opportunities, things like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. for writers, those are places to look and to start. And, and I would, and I would just add because you know we always love to talk about ourselves. I was copy editor of the yearbook. I was okay. editor in chief of the literary magazine, and I wrote articles for the newspaper on the uh, when it came out, which was not very regularly. So, yeah, there you yeah, go. I, same here. I did journalism. I uh, was uh, on the newspaper staff and became editor-in-chief as well and uh, did nothing for the yearbook, but some things for the lit mag as well. So, yeah, there, I think that's a, it's a, it's a great, easy thing. Not easy, but it's, it's, writing isn't always easy, but it, it's something that's right there in the high school. Very often, you don't have to jump through hoops to join a newspaper staff or a yearbook staff. Usually they're looking for people to join and become part of the staff. And so for kids that are, say, ninth grade, 10th grade, looking to get in, I would say go, go and seek these opportunities early because as you move up in the ranks, as you become a junior, become a senior, you could become an editor for editor-in-chief at, at the top, you know, senior year. Yep. And that speaks to leadership as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your point is a good one. And it's a point that is relevant, regardless of whatever you're going to do outside of the classroom, start early, commit to it, ideally achieve some type of leadership if you can. You can't do that in every activity. But if it's what you love doing, that would seem to be uh, a place where you're more likely to be able to uh, achieve at that level. So those are great ideas within the high school, and I agree. I think you're going to find that at a lot of schools. Um, I will put a plug in for if your school doesn't have a literary magazine, you could always consider starting one. That is never a bad thing um, from a college's point of view when a student sees something that they wish existed and it doesn't, so they create it themselves. That's always pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Um, What what about... In in this electronic age, Beth, of blogging, Mm -hmm. That's something that a lot more kids are starting to do, too. And 
some of them in a more organized way. I've been working with some students who have established a blog through their school. So that, you know, that, that's another outlet that didn't exist when we were students. Right. But it's there now. That's interesting because I, you know, certainly when you think about blogging or when I think about a student blogging, I generally think about them blogging on their own, in their own space. Um, I never really thought about blogging for the school. So that's a great new one. I'm copying that down. I will be suggesting that to my students who are really into writing um, mm-hmm. at our next meeting. So there you go. Yeah. Learn something okay. new every day. What about... Um, what about opportunities if, you're, if you've either exhausted what exists at your high school or you are doing that but you want to do more? What else is available, maybe some ideas for outside of, of high school? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, I, writing comes to mind first because English, let, let, me, let me cover English. I mean, if you love English, usually you love to read. Reading usually is, is a big piece of it. And so reading is more of a solitary type of activity, but there might be book clubs. Maybe mm-hmm. through the school or in the community. Maybe the local library has some opportunities for people who love to read or people who love to write or want to read and want to write more or different things outside of what you're doing in class. So those could be some other opportunities. Um, there could be sometimes, you know, I've had a student, had a student recently who was interested in getting involved with reading outside of her realm of, of comfort and she Googled some opportunities. She found a few things for herself that were more online-based, so they were more kind of remote, but she did find some things that kind of got her into a book club, got her into a a discussion group uh, with other people who were just voracious readers who wanted to read different things, or, uh, you know, I've had kids who are really into, say, Game of Thrones, the show, but also the books. Or the, you know, well, maybe it's not as current, but Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potter books and uh, the Twilight series and things like that who have gotten into uh, maybe online groups where they discuss these things. And maybe they're not as heavily literary, but there's still, there's still reading involved. There's still discussion of plot and characters and motivations and things like that involved. So it, it still speaks to those sorts of interests. That one's a little bit less. How, how would you have a student quantify that on an application, do you think? I've, I've not actually had someone do something like that, but it is intriguing, and um, it, it is a book club in many ways, which is, it, it is. quantifiable. It, it, I think that's what, they're, what they were calling it. I had the one student who, who did go ahead and find this opportunity. She did call it a book club, and really that's, that's what it was. Uh, you know, they read, they discussed, as, as you would with a book club. Um, so, yeah, she... she she used that. Uh, and yes, that doesn't, it, it may not grab as much attention for, for some application readers, but some who are also readers of books and lovers of reading might say, oh, that's kind of cool. Okay, that's, yeah, that's, you know, just because yeah. it's not a, an official school-sanctioned activity doesn't mean it's not valuable to the person participating in it. Absolutely. I think something like that, an online book club, something like that is probably never going to suffice as the only thing that someone does, but I think a really nice addition to other things. And I think your point's a really good one. It certainly does not have to be something done in the high school in order to be valid, for sure. Mm -hmm. I definitely want people to, you know, appreciate that. Um, So what other kinds of things outside of high school um, have you seen students get involved in? Um, I have a couple, so, you know, mm-hmm. I, but I, you go first and then I'll add mine. Sure, sure. Well, I, I have a couple of students who have been involved with their local 
either newspapers or it, it, here in New Jersey, we call it the patch. They have the town, they call it yeah, the, we have the that online too. newspaper. Yeah, the patch. So I've had a few students get involved with writing for their local patch, their town's patch, uh, or local newspaper, community paper, uh, church, synagogue might have a newsletter. Uh, I've had students ask if they could contribute or be a bigger part of the editorial staff of those sorts of papers or, or um, volumes. And then sometimes that's it's a very bare bones sort of thing. It might just be one person organizing that. But very often people are excited to have other writers say, hey, I, I want to contribute to this. Because if you're the only person putting a newsletter together, it's hard to come up with content and, and get it all done. Uh, so if somebody else is eager and coming to you and wanting to write, uh, you know, sometimes that, that's, that's something that's, that's welcomed. Yeah, absolutely. And especially for some of those local papers where they get a lot of their stuff from stock, um, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not, they're, most of it isn't original content anyway. It can be a really mm-hmm. nice voice. I, I have a couple of, um, I had, um, I've seen students who cover their team, their high school sports teams for the local paper. So mm-hmm. they're essentially, they're the high school sports beat writer and they provide copy to the sports desk and the sports desk runs it. Um mm-hmm. Uh, and then I've also seen sometimes students have a column, like a teen columnist, where they're talking about issues facing their um, their peers, uh, yeah. and you know, even kind of almost an opinion column, which is kind of cool. Again, in these cases, these were really local newspapers, but still, anytime you go above and you know, sort of beyond what you could do in high school, that that usually is pretty intriguing to the colleges. Um, uh-huh. I have one super interesting example that I remember from my time at Penn. It was a, a Penn applicant, and she had taken driver's ed, as you do, right? You uh-huh. take driver's ed, you're going to get your license, and notice that the driver's ed manual that was used by the state was rife with typos and some bad grammar and misspellings. I mean, it was, I don't know that it was terrible, but it wasn't very good. And basically, she wrote a letter to the person who was responsible for it, offering to copy edit it for free. They took her up on it. (laughs) And so she fixed up that driver's ed manual, which I thought was, which as you can imagine, made for a great, interesting little tidbit on her application. And in the committee room, when I'm like, we want this kid, you know, she saw an issue and offered her services to fix it. How cool is that? So I love it. I love it. I I would, that would be my favorite student. (laughs) Yeah, it was one of mine for sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. So, um, what about, I think the last thing we haven't talked about is really things that these students can do during the summer. So what kinds of, we have a, about a minute left to, to talk about summer opportunities. Yeah. Well, summer opportunities, I mean, there are some very well-known summer opportunities. Like, for example, I always think of the Iowa Young Writers uh, Studio. Uh, that's, that's one I've always known about. Or Interlochen has an arts camp, and, and there's a creative writing section of that um, Many colleges do offer writing programs, and some of them are pretty selective, and some of them are not hard to get into at all. Um, the, what else comes to mind? Um, there's a creative writer's workshop through Duke that's pretty selective. Some of them might have portfolio requirements, so it, it's worth taking a look at what summer programs are out there and whether they need to have portfolio items to submit mm-hmm. in order to be admitted to these programs, or if they can just get in and start writing. Uh, Johns Hopkins also has a really good summer writing program as well. Great. 
um, those come to mind. And also, I think there are a couple more journalism programs. Uh, I had a student do one at BU that was really worthwhile. I don't think it was highly selective to get into that program, but was a great program. He got a lot out of it, and he ended up ultimately going to BU and studying journalism, and now he's a he's a news reporter out there, and I think Milwaukee now, which is kind of exciting. Um, Columbia has one. Uh, a lot of the schools that have schools of journalism or schools of communications very often will have them. Uh, one that's very difficult to get into, very selective, is through Medill at Northwestern. Northwestern. Got it. Lisa, thank you so much. These are great ideas. um, And I hope our listeners were interested in English and writing. Well, if they're not, they'll let other people know who are. Um, Thanks again for for coming today and to all of my guests today. A few really important things before we sign off. Don't forget to sign up for free downloads of the show on iTunes and rate us while you're there. Uh, We're still running our survey, which just asks some questions about what you'd like to hear more of on our show. You're going to find that at www.getintocollege.com forward slash survey. And we're going to give you two free guides um, as a thank you for completing that. So don't forget, go visit that and sign up. Next week, we're talking college admissions for homeschooled students, um, college financial aid in your state. And we're going to do another in these extracurricular activities series. And this is a big one, ideas for kids who just aren't joiners. They don't like to do this stuff. Um, As a reminder, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Music.